All right, good evening to you. Take your Bibles, if you will, and let's look at Revelation chapter 3. As you know, we uh, took a little bit of a hiatus over the holidays, and we're jumping back into this. We have some work to do to finish up what we had been studying about this church, this letter to the church at Philadelphia. You remember in chapter 3, we left it with a promise given to the church. promise comes to this sweet little congregation in verse 10, that because they have kept the word of my perseverance, Jesus says, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. They were promised that they would be kept from an hour of testing. Notice as well that this was a test that would come upon the whole world. So it wasn't localized. It was a test that would come upon the whole earth. All who are on the earth would come under whatever it is that this test would involve. And it is also to test those who dwell on the earth, a particular group of people who are earth dwellers, the ones who are existing at the time the test happens. This church would be kept from that because of their perseverance. And like all the letters to the churches, since these churches went out of existence before the ultimate time this prophecy speaks of, then then these are letters to all of us for encouragement, for wisdom about the coming time of tribulation, which is spoken of elsewhere, both through the prophets as well as Christ himself. And whoever is existing at the time, the people of God in local assemblies... At the time this happens, this would be for them a wonderful encouragement that if they keep the word of Christ's perseverance, then they too will be kept from the hour that would crush the faith of the elect if it were even possible, Jesus said. And so what you have here is this wonderful promise that they're going to be protected from it. I introduced that to you last time with an inundation of information about the catching away of the church. We did a summary, really, in many ways, of all that we see in the book of Revelation from chapter 6 through chapter 19 on the tribulation period. All that we see is happening to those who have come to Christ and the bloodbath that ensues on the part of the Antichrist and his his work against God's people. I threw a whole bunch of that at you and then gave you a summary of the different views of the timing of the rapture because not everyone believes that the catching away of God's people will happen at the beginning of the tribulation period as I have believed. Some believe it will happen in the middle. Some believe it will happen at the end and will be raptured and then return immediately with Jesus Christ as he sets up his kingdom before the millennium. But be that as it may, and while we may still discuss some of those views as we go, because laced throughout the study of the book of Revelation are these wonderful dynamics that we will see with regard to what God is going to do to deal with sin, I want to talk about this promise here of being kept from the hour of testing, and I primarily want to talk about it in terms of the view that we hold at this church, that that the next event on God's calendar is the catching away of God's people so that he can then begin to deal with that final seven-year period that is spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Sixty-nine seven-year periods have already taken place. 
since the decree of Cyrus. And since that time, only 69 periods of seven years have taken place, and there is one still to, to deal with, one seven-year period, which will be the time of Jacob's trouble, the unique time we talked about last time, a time so unprecedented in its trouble and terrors that the book of Revelation speaks of it, and we marvel. I want to talk about the catching away of the church as our church has believed it, the rapture. Why is that such a comfort? I mean, besides escaping these things, why did, why did the New Testament in particular places mention this catching away, this going to be with Christ, and mention it as a comfort? You remember in John 14, Jesus said, hey, I said I'm going away, but let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, rooms, many places for God's people to dwell. And if it weren't so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare this place for you, and if I go and prepare it, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then you have passages that delineate this wonderful comfort of the rapture more extensively. And I want to look at one of those tonight. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, a very classic text where the Apostle Paul helps this new congregation with this whole matter of end times, eschatology. They had been taught in eschatology because it says in chapter 1, verse 10, that they were waiting eagerly for the Lord's return. So in a short period of time, Paul brought the church, this brand new church together, and he gave them the whole counsel of God, even the tenets of the faith, including the doctrine of last things. Paul would no doubt have a system of summarizing theology when a church was born, and when he went in there, whether he was going to stay for three years like he did in Corinth, or whether he would be there and then whisked away for what, what amounts to probably three months here in this church, maybe less. He had a systematic way of teaching, and he taught them the doctrine of God, and he taught them the doctrine of Christ, and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and the doctrine of salvation, and the doctrine of Scripture, and he taught them the doctrine of end times, last things. These are great things to study. Sometimes people have said it's not important because it causes arguments. Listen, it, it is true that we come to these passages and there's a bit of trepidation. There is the need to study deeper and more humbly, thoughtfully. This church alone is made up of a variety of believers from a variety of theological backgrounds. Our, our church's theological heritage articulates a particular theological identity with certain views. The doctrine of last things in Scripture is derived from some more clear texts than others, and then some quite mysterious passages. And all Christians should be diligent students, always laboring to understand for the purpose of developing strong convictions. And holding certain views because you feel strongly about them does not, in and of itself, mean you're correct. Just because I hold to a pre-tribulational rapture doesn't mean automatically that I'm correct. I must study this over and over again, and I must teach what I believe to be true at the outset, and yet still humbly approach texts of Scripture that are given to us. But to imagine that it's not important is to dismiss passages of Scripture, not study them at all, as if God never said anything about the way things end. But I know sometimes it causes rancor. Believers strongly disagree over end times theology 
But it's true, while we may speak strongly about these things and disagree strongly, some things should never occur in the church. First of all, we should never think that we're guilty of some egregious sin if we find out we've been incorrect. If you, over time, study the issue and you come to change your view, you should not believe that you've been in some, some heinous sin. All you're doing is coming to grips with the wider and, and deeper and richer dynamics of what is revealed in Scripture, a, a greater, more mature understanding of these things. Furthermore, holding your views in pride as though all questions have been easily and summarily dismissed is also something that should never happen. It should also be that the cause of division uh, occurs in the church. That should not happen just because we disagree. We shouldn't be factious over these things. We also shouldn't separate from other believers just because their eschatological position is different than ours. There's no reason. This isn't a, a soul-threatening issue in the church. So we shouldn't allow our beliefs about last things to cause any personal or attitudinal or corporate division in the body. Dr. Wayne Grudem, professor of theology from Phoenix Seminary, said, no matter what their differences on the details, all who take the Bible as their final authority agree that the final and ultimate result of Christ's return will be the judgment of unbelievers and the final reward of believers, and that believers will live with Christ in a new heaven and a new earth for all eternity. We differ sometimes, he said, over specific details, such as the nature of the millennium and the relationship of Christ's return to the millennium, the sequence of Christ's return, and even the great tribulation period that'll come to the earth, and the question of salvation of the Jewish people as a nation, and the relationship of the Jews to the church or in the time of the Gentiles. Dr. Grudem goes on to say, differences on these matters should be seen as matters of secondary importance, not as differences over primary doctrinal matters. I especially like the challenge of the late Charles Erdman, pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Princeton during the 1800s and professor of practical theology at Princeton Seminary all through uh, the early 1900s. This is what he said, the return of Christ is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. Like the other great truths of Revelation, it is a controverted doctrine. The essential fact is held universally by all who admit the authority of Scripture, but as to certain incidental, although important elements, there is difference of opinion among even the most careful and reverent students. Any consideration of the theme demands, therefore, modesty, humility, and abundant charity, end quote. I like that. Now here in 1 Thessalonians 4, you remember in the context that Paul is dealing with maybe a three, four, five-month-old church, and they needed some biblical clarity that would settle their inner distress and some grief they were having over some aspects of the return of Christ. They'd been taught an eschatology, but they, they were having questions come up in their mind as it related to their personal trials. You say, what kind of trials? Well, first of all, apparently some believers had died in the ensuing months since Paul's departure and the teaching of these things. Perhaps they were elderly or sickly, or maybe they'd already been martyred somewhere in the city. Since the church was born, they had become confused about a couple of things, and their surviving loved ones became overwhelmed with grief, thinking that these who have died will now somehow miss out on the glories of the resurrection. 
and or perhaps not be a privileged part of that momentous event when Christ comes and we are raised to newness of life with a resurrection body. And so some had died since Paul's departure and they were grief-stricken. They're going to miss out. They're not going to be resurrected. Something's happened. They're going to miss the event. These are my loved ones. I want them there. You know how that, how that feels when you lose a loved one and you get all confused about where they went. Well, this was a church that knew about what was beyond the grave, but they were in grief thinking that those who had died, even having died in Christ, they would somehow miss out on the resurrection. Secondly, as, as they were observing the intense persecution against them, they became terrified that perhaps the day of the Lord had begun. The day of the Lord being the time of this great tribulation and trouble, as the Old Testament called it. It wasn't merely one day. It was a season, an epoch, an era. It was a time in which it would begin and end and in the middle would be filled with terror. And they thought the day of the Lord had begun. And so more clarity would be needed even after this letter, just a few months later, when Paul would write the second letter to the Thessalonians. And he would write on the beginning events of the day of the Lord, which had not yet horizoned. And so therefore, perhaps the terrifying judgments they thought were beginning, and Paul had to clarify, no, they hadn't yet begun. To simplify the flow of the text in front of us here, Paul begins to deal with why the rapture of the church is so comforting. Why the rapture of the church is so comforting. And he cares for them in verse 13. And then verses 14 and 15, he sort of gives the foundational cornerstone of, of this great teaching to clarify and give them comfort. Verses 15 to 17, he brings greater clarity on, on the exact nature of the events. And then finally says that they're to minister to one another with the comfort of them. Follow along as I read verse 13 to 18. Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have died or those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The first thing that Paul does when he had heard that they were grieving, having been concerned that relatives would be missing out on the resurrection, or that because of the persecution, the day of the Lord had begun, and so they'd missed the glorious return of Christ, the first thing Paul does is he removes the dangerous confusion by saying to them right up front in almost formulaic fashion, we do not want you to be confused. I love how he opens with that because now you know they're going to pay attention. When Paul writes this and says, I'm about to tell you something that should clear things up, that alone would have removed the dangerous confusion and relieved their misery, their downcast condition. And he even gives the purpose. I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep 
so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Wow, there it is. He opens this thing up with this beginning bookend. It is what we often share at funerals. It is what we tell believers over and over again. You do not have to grieve for lost loved ones as those who have no hope. That is to say, the hope that he's about to explain should settle all of our grief about the death of loved ones. I love that. We were just recently with Lance and Beth Quinn this last week, and we had a sweet time with them. You know, she has been diagnosed with a very aggressive cancer that may take her life soon. Certainly will take her life inevitably unless the Lord intervenes in some miraculous way and suspends uh, the physiological laws to which we're bound. But it was a sweet time because Five hours of conversation, reminiscing and thinking about ministry and 32 years of being together in life as couples and, and praying for one another, encouraging one another, bearing children and raising children alongside one another, and, and then just thinking about going home and the loss of loved ones and when someone goes home. And, and while we experience as Christians a very real and normal sadness we often turn to this passage at funerals because we want to say what is true of us. We have hope that swallows up any kind of grief that would destroy our faith. A kind of grief that would destroy our view of God and trust in his goodness and his character. There is the purpose, Paul says. I want to relieve your downcast misery I don't want you to grieve as do the rest. Who's the rest? Those outside of Christ. They have no hope. That, therefore, becomes, conversely, our greatest hope. We who are in Jesus never grieve as those who have no hope. We never grieve in a faith-crushing way. Never. Because to go past the threshold of death is to merely transition into the arms of Christ. Whatever will be our last breath, however it will come, in whatever way it will come, it will be a mere transition, a split-second transition, and we will suddenly be with Christ. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. Such care from the Apostle Paul to this confused new church. And then he anchors their hope in the fact of the resurrection. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. If we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep in Jesus. He, he no, notice that the second half of the phrase, he doesn't mention our belief. What he's saying is, if we have believed in the resurrection because of Christ, then it is an automatic that we're saved and therefore it is an automatic that this evidence, this fact of the resurrection applies to the believer. I love that. You would expect him to say, if we have believed that Jesus died and rose again, we should also believe that we who have fallen asleep in Christ will come with him. But he doesn't say that. He says, if you've come to Christ, if you've believed that Jesus died and rose again, you're saved and having been saved, you now know for a fact that you will be raised. If you've fallen asleep in Jesus, someone who's died in Christ will be raised. They, we just know it. And so he anchors our hope in the history of the resurrection. 
the fact of the resurrection. And it authenticates our hope. Notice he says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. The revelation of God telling us that the resurrection happened, explaining how it happened, giving us the details of how it happened, and then telling us, in fact, through the rest of inspired scripture, that this is the word of Almighty God, that in fact Jesus did rise from the dead, and his life then becomes our life. And therefore, it is a guaranteed, authenticated promise by virtue of the fact that it was spoken to us by the Lord. Jesus says in John 6 to the disciples around him, you will be raised up on the last day. All that the Father has given me, I will raise them up. That is a promise from the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe otherwise would be to accuse him of being a liar. So you have this bedrock, this theological cornerstone grounded and anchored in the historical fact of the resurrection and authenticated by the revelation of God himself. This is the word of the Lord. And he says, I tell you this by the word of the Lord. And now he, he wants to bring the comfort into some specifics. And this is marvelous. He could have stopped right there and said, now, do you believe it? There you go. Don't worry about it. Those who have fallen asleep will be brought with the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be resurrected. That could have been enough. But I love the, the reality that clarity is a great thing in Scripture. And you know, I often want to remind my own heart and remind you that whenever you're looking for answers and you're confused, do not turn to yourself. Do not even turn ultimately to human beings. As long as a human being opens the Scriptures and gives you the Scriptures, you have clarity. You do not need to be confused. Paul is about to tell a new congregation, there will be no more confusion after I tell you what's going to happen. Why? Because this is it. These are the details. You don't have to worry. This will be the ground of your hope. Far too often we, um, we lose ground in our sanctification in the Christian life because when a dilemma arises in our life and something of a spiritual need becomes the trial in front of us, we often turn inward, we go inward, we swirl it around in our mind, and instead of seeking answers in Scripture, instead of trusting that the Holy Spirit, through the reading of God's Word, is going to convict your mind, renew your reasoning, and bring about an understanding and discernment. And we lose ground when we turn inward, or turn to earthly things, or human opinions, or a mixture you're not to do that. There is clarity that comes in the Word of God. And that is what Paul does with this brand new church. They do not have to start off as a new church on shaky ground when it comes to eschatology, at least insofar as the Lord gives hope and comfort through the catching away of his people. And so he gives details. He gives details. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. They will go first, he says. The dead in Christ will rise first, the end of verse 16 says. Let us remember that Paul is giving the Thessalonians comfort about the resurrection of dead loved ones. 
And he is describing the details of God's people being caught up into the air to meet the Lord. As I said, there are other texts like John 14, a promise that when Christ comes back for his own, he will take them to his father's house with him where he is. 1 Corinthians 15, another great passage, verse 51 and 52, a promise that in the end the dead will be raised and they and the living will be transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye into glorified saints whose bodies can never perish. And it'll happen in an instant, a moment. Twinkling of an eye is just language in the Greek New Testament that that is all about how quick light flashes across someone's eye. That fast. And in those texts, there's no specifics about the timing or the suddenness, or even if you're supposed to see preceding signs. It's just a fact. It will happen. 1 Corinthians 15 is the same way. No specifics about preceding signs that you're supposed to watch for, and there's no discussion of imminence. Only the mention of the last trumpet, though we don't even know if this is a trumpet signaling resurrection or a trumpet signaling judgment. The two are, in fact, different or may be different in Scripture. But here you have this wonderful set of details that Paul gives for the sake of their comfort. He gives the order of the believer's resurrection. He talks about the descent of Christ from heaven. He talks about the resurrection and transformation of the dead in Christ. He talks about the transformation of those who are still alive and remain when Christ comes, the living believer. And then he says that there is a permanent union from that moment on of all believers with one another and with the Lord. First of all, note, we see the order of the resurrection. The dead are raised first and then those alive when he comes. Verse 15, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. So in the resurrection and transformation of believers, loved ones who died in Christ are not going to miss a thing, he says. In fact, they'll be raised in a moment just prior to the living believers being caught up. One pastor said he thought that was the case because they're buried and they have six feet further to go. I don't think that's legitimate. (laughs) The scriptures say that they will be raised first. The Thessalonians didn't have to worry that that Aunt Athenia and Uncle Serinthus weren't going to show up. They're going to come. In fact, they're going to be raised first. They will see Christ's return. They're going to be caught up in the resurrection and they will get their resurrection bodies first. Just exactly how is Christ going to do it? Well, the next verse is introduced with this conjunction, the word for, or better translated because, and it indicates the specific reason the living will not be at a greater advantage. Notice, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. So here we see the descent of Christ from heaven. He'll descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. In the original, if you translate it literally, it would say, because he himself, the Lord, attended by a loud command, the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet blast of God will descend from heaven. That's the word order in the original. So you can see the emphasis. He himself, the Lord, 
who is attended by these things, the loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet blast, he will descend from heaven. So he himself is emphatic in the text. And so Paul sets forth the theological reality of the second coming. It is Jesus Christ personally coming to his people and for his people. The consummation of the ages rotates around Christ. He is the axis. It is his rule. It is his reign. It is his person, his work. It is his return. It is his authority, his glory. And we sometimes lose sight of that truth. When we think of our hope, we think of it far too often in ways that are, are earthly. The thoughts that come to our mind, um, they're not the supernatural wonders of heaven. They're worth pondering to be sure, but what comes to our mind is often earthly things rather than the hope of the believer. We might center our hope on completing the task of reaching the lost as if somehow our strategic plan and our evaluation of how we're doing is the path to realizing our hope, and it isn't. Those things are great. Gospel ministry is great. Missions are great. It's a mandate and a privilege. But we can't ground the center of our hope on the evangelization of the world. If that were our hope, we would never want Christ to come back until that's completed. And sometimes you see ministries get out of balance because of that. They're focused on some human task, and I agree, we ought to seek the lost and take the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth, but that's not where our hope is grounded. Our hope is grounded in the return of Christ, Christ himself. The apostles aggressively went forth to make disciples of all nations. They longed, however, for the Lord to return quickly that they might see him face to face. 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all, listen, who have loved his appearing. Listen, the apostles loved Christ's return and his appearing. They loved it. They wanted it. Titus 2.13, they were waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They knew what Jesus had said through the Apostle John, Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen, John says. Come, Lord Jesus. Make it happen. The hope of the people of God is not how many people we evangelize, as wonderful a privilege and how glorious a work that is. The hope of the people of God is the personal, physical return of our Savior to greet his people, take his people, to corporately encompass his people, and to remain with his people. That's our hope. That's what we wait for. That's what we long for. 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. We saw back in chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And this is not to discount even the personal indwelling of Christ by his spirit that we now experience right in this season. But that truth is in harmony with the reality that Christ himself will one day appear and he will look personally into all of our faces. Think about that. He told the disciples that he would not leave them as orphans, 
And while he is gone, he will send his presence, the Spirit of God himself, to take up their abode. And through the Spirit's presence and his indwelling of the believer, the Father and the Son are taking up their dwelling within each believer until he receives them back to himself, John 14. He is coming to personally look us in the face and embrace us as his own, every one of us. And since the Lord of glory will not share his glory with anyone, not even angels, then angels are not sent to gather God's people into a holding area for some sort of processing. Christ himself comes. You feel very privileged, you know, when you travel to a foreign country, you come back in the United States, you know, I kind of gloat a little bit. When I go through customs in a foreign country, I'm the foreigner. And, you know, the nationals are looking at you, oh, you're a foreigner in our country. But when you come back to customs in the United States, you kind of get a little thing going on, you know, in your attitude. You're looking at the foreigners, oh, you take that line, I'm over here. United States, passport. You get to gloating a little bit. Why? Because you feel at home. This is your place. This is where your citizenship lies. This is your home country. These are your people. That is minor and pales in comparison to the reality that we belong to a Savior who will come personally for us. I'm not going to some supernatural custom station and being processed. He will come for me individually, for all of us personally and individually. Nor are God's people called upward to the throne without the Lord as our personal escort. We are taken with him. He is our advocate, our priest, our king, our master, our friend, the co-heir of all the inheritance that he has received. The apostles taught that believers ought to wait in anticipation and hope for the coming of the Lord. We wait for the revelation of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7. Our citizenship isn't here, it's in heaven, Philippians 3.20, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. Is that you? eagerly waiting for a savior? I'll tell you what, you, you might live on an undercurrent of strong hope if you were eagerly waiting for the savior, because you'd think about resurrection a lot more, you'd think about that personal meeting, you might even think about how you're living and, and correct that, a la 1 Corinthians 3, because you don't want to meet him and have your works tested by the fire of his glorious presence and have a pile of ashes where there should have been gold, silver, and precious stones. So to wait eagerly for the Lord and to think about the hope of your resurrection and his personal return to get you could change the way you live today. When the Lord comes back, will he find faith on the earth? That question ought to be rolling around in our minds all the time. Lord, do you, will you find faith in me? Truly? Will I, will I know you when you return, as the songwriter said? Or have I changed the image of you to live the way I want to live, distorted who you really are. So even if the world was looking, they could not see you through me. I mean, eagerly waiting for the Lord's return shapes you up, hems you in, trims your life, makes you think about his return in a more imminent way, in a fresh way. That's what Paul wanted to do. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 14 he said, look, if you think about that, you're going to keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to not have any reproach in your life. 
James 5, verses 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And you want a clear conscience. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Listen, love for others and a clear conscience is, is on your mind when you think eagerly about the Lord coming back for you personally by name. Your worship and your communion has changed. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You remember this morning? And to remain vitally connected to Christ and the spiritual resources that come our way. 1 John 2, 28 says you're motivated to abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Love of the face-to-face return of Jesus Christ is the hope of the believer. And to imagine that he is coming for all of his people, even those who've died in Jesus, they will be with him when they return. And their bodies will be raised first. They're already perfected in holiness in their soul. And then they'll be joined to a new body and they'll be raised first. And then we will join them in the twinkling of an eye if we are alive and remain when Christ comes. Christ is the hope. This would have been such a massive comfort to the Thessalonians. It would have been the richest of moments just to read that, that he will come himself from heaven. They wouldn't have to worry about waiting or guessing or being duped or being greeted by some representative who will take them to Christ. They wouldn't have to worry that it would be some messenger that would come that they wouldn't recognize him. They're waiting for Christ. They're longing to see his face. They're hurting over the sin that plagues us. Is that you? Man, every day I want to be like that. I want to wait for Christ. I want to long to see his face. I want to hurt over the sin that makes me less effective for my Lord and Master. I want to pray for the vindication of God and the crushing judgment upon Satan and sin that needs to come so that all things are made right and God is honored. I want to think about that every day. I want to hold on to his promises and put my hope in him regardless of the devastating circumstances of life that come my way. I don't want that to steal my longing for him and my trust in his promises. We prayed with this sweet couple, friends of ours for 32 years in ministry, and to hear this sweet woman pray whose body is riddled with that which will take her life not long from now. And she prays, I believe in the promises of God. The Lord has done good to me. When I was at the church in Phoenix, I met a sweet missionary wife whose husband six months ago went home to be with the Lord. She's a young widow. And I hadn't met her. I just read her story, as many of you did on Facebook, because this is a Ministry of friends of ours, Scott Maxwell and Smedley Yates, our pastors there, and a sweet, precious church. 
where I preached last Sunday, and before the service, I had an opportunity to finally greet her face-to-face, and I said, Cameron, I'm just so blessed to, to meet you. And I said, could you tell me how you're doing? And, and she said, I'm just so thrilled with what the Lord and his plan has meant for me and for my children. And she said, I'm just confident the Lord has done good to me. He's done good to me. This is a woman who loves the return of the Lord Jesus Christ because we grieve as those who have hope, not those who have no hope. Sure, we're tired. Sure, she was worn out. Sure, Beth Quinn is tested and needy. And sure, the thought of leaving family members is is a wrenching grief to the heart of a parent and a grandparent and and a wife to a husband and companion in life. When the time comes and you're brought back to the truths of Scripture, it is Christ and the hope that he himself will descend and come for you and for those who are in Christ around you. That is where your hope lies. When that time comes and Jesus Christ is about to establish his final rule, we won't be put on hold or told that we just didn't get a seat close enough. Have you ever wondered about that? How's he going to be near all of us? It's a miracle. But he's my Savior. He's your Savior. You don't have to worry that you're going to have a seat, you know, further away from me. In fact, you'll, if, if in any human sense there are realities like that, I'm certain that you'd be ahead of me. But no, the the miracle is that he's coming personally for all of us and you won't have to wait for some specialized place. He's your personal Lord and Master and he himself comes personally. Look at the text and the specificity. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. I love that. That's where Christ is. He's in heaven. He rules and reigns in the heavenlies, in the realm of God. And he is interceding for us so that we remain in his love and our souls remain under his eternal guardianship. He's at the right hand of God, Ephesians 1. He's at the right hand of God, hiding us in himself, ready to unveil a redeemed people at his own glorious appearing, Colossians 3. Jesus Christ left heaven at his first coming and he took on the form of a slave and he laid his life down in humility and he took the shame of sinners upon himself. But at his second coming, regardless of your view of the exact timing, he will leave heaven and he will descend in glory to receive his people and he will judge the wicked and he will establish his kingdom forever. And whether that happens at the beginning of the tribulation where he takes us and rescues us out as I believe the promise to Philadelphia was made or whether you believe it happens in that moment at the end of the tribulation, having come through it and they're called up to meet him and come and return with him instantly, whatever your view, it is he who comes from heaven because that's where he is, ruling and reigning. And he awaits the Father's perfect timing and he himself will descend from his glorious place in heaven. And Paul gives a couple of specifics here that are quite fascinating. He will descend from heaven with a shout. The the word means a a command. It's the only time it's used, so we don't have any other biblical data 
to help us with how Paul's using it here. The idea of authority seems to be indicated, maybe even has the notion of urgency. In extra-biblical works, it conveyed the idea of a military order. When someone gave a military command, I sure understand that, having served in the military. When they give a command, you hop to, you move. And sometimes in, involved in that element of authority was immediate urgency. The call to be swift and vigorous is kind of behind this verbal terminology here. We're not told who gives the command. We're not told who receives it. Maybe it's even placed in this text in juxtaposition to the phrase the Lord himself because it's Jesus who shouts the command. It might be the Lord himself shouts this command or he descends from heaven with the shout of his own command. That would seem to fit the concept of the Lord calling the dead from the grave, John 5. An hour is coming, John 5, 28 and 29, in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deed to a resurrection of judgment. And so this shouted command then is likely the loud cry of the Lord for his people, dead and alive, to be raised and transformed. In one moment, one sound of his voice. Won't that shock people? The Jesus that the world mocks, the Jesus that the scientists laugh about because it's to them a mere crutch on the lips of weak people, that Jesus whom they have denied, that Jesus whom they've kicked to the curb, that Jesus whom if he did exist in history in their minds, they are happy that he was murdered and silenced and mocked. That Jesus who hung on the cross and whom was railed at by those who said, look, you can't even save yourself. You're going to save the world? Come down from the cross if you're the great king. That Jesus. The Jesus who is diminished into a mere human prophet by false religions all the time. That Jesus. Won't that be a shock? When he gives a command and all souls are called to his bar of personal presence, justice, that Jesus. And Paul says there will also be the voice of the archangel. It could be taken as an exclamation of the explanation of the shouted command. It might stand on its own. It could be taken either way, the phrase. Neither of the words, voice or archangel, has the word the, or what we call the definite article, so it literally reads, with a, vo with a voice of an archangel. We know from other texts of Scripture, most notably Jude 9, that Michael is an archangel. He serves God in power and might against enemies. He is the kind of angel, the kind of angelic being that, that has power and might associated with him. We have no idea whether he's the only one. Jewish tradition claimed that there were a specific number, seven of them. We just don't know. I think this is probably an indication that, that as with you know, a general commanding and giving that command to the next rank down, then the subordinate commanders repeat the command all the way down the line so as to serve and represent submission to the general. And so with a commander 
God himself, Christ himself, shouting his command, it is done. The Father has said it. Christ is coming for his people. And then the voice of the archangel repeats the command. That could be the scene here. And it makes you sit back and in awe of the incomparable power and authority of God. When the time comes, he doesn't have to get hours of sleep preparing for the big expenditure of energy. He's not getting ready for some campaign, some big war. He doesn't have to carefully calculate the seasons or the times or the world cultures or the sociopolitical fallout at the time. He's not worried about who's in power, which empire exists and which ones have gone away. He isn't concerned about being stopped by the forces of evil or encountering some opposition he can't deal with. God is not wondering how his people will respond. He knows how they're going to respond because he has ordered it. He's ordained it. It is authoritative. It's established. He shouts a command, and in an instant, all is completely accomplished. Christ comes for his people. And listen, when you think about that, it just makes man's railings against God so pitiful. It makes the mocking of God by these great, giant intellects, it makes them mentally so picayune, I mean so puny and small. They're nothing to God. Nothing. He himself will descend, Paul says, with a shouted command and with the voice of an archangel, and now with the trumpet of God. That's difficult to interpret, the trumpet of God. The Old Testament, of course, as I said last time we looked at this before Christmas, the Old Testament speaks of trumpets being used in connection with divine appearances and in connection with times of judgment. Exodus 19, Isaiah 27, the prophet Joel, the prophet Zechariah, when a trumpet blew, the trumpet of God, there were signals of God's appearing to God's people to lead them, and there were other times where it signaled judgment. The trumpets that were blown sometimes signified the beginning of a festival, as in 2 Samuel 6. Sometimes it marked times of God's people meeting for a convocation, a time of worship, a gathering of the people of God for announcements were sometimes uh, begun with a trumpet blast, 1 Kings chapter 1. This is probably its indication here. God's trumpet sounds forth to call his people up to himself in resurrection, power, and glory. Furthermore, it seems to parallel 1 Corinthians 15.52, which was about this resurrection and the twinkling of an eye, the transformation of God's people. 1 Corinthians 15.52 speaks about the sudden transformation in the resurrection, and it is the last trumpet mentioned there. The last trumpet. Some have equated this trumpet of God in 1 Thessalonians 4 with the trumpet in Matthew 24, 31. But there are problems with that view. I mean, clearly 1 Thessalonians 4 right here and 1 Corinthians 15, the church is in view. The church is in view. And I'm not convinced that Matthew 24 depicts what the church experiences. In fact, I believe it's the great tribulation beginning to unfold as Jesus gives it in the discourse. Everything in the context points to Christian Jews who are in the midst of the great and terrible day of the Lord in Matthew 24, not the church. So if 1 Corinthians 15 has the last trumpet, 1 Thessalonians 4 has the trumpet of God, it seems like those are associated with the church being taken and rescued and being with Christ. 
It's also true that 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 speak of transformation of the believer in resurrection glory, while Matthew 24 merely speaks of the gathering of the elect who are on the earth, doesn't speak of any transformation. Others have come along and they've equated this trumpet of God with the seventh trumpet of Revelation 11:15, and so they believe the rapture occurs at the beginning of the tribulation period. Again, that could be... But from the context of Revelation, judgment of the wicked is occurring, not the transformation of the believer and being with the Lord forever. 1 Thessalonians 4 is the believer's resurrection in view. So the trumpet of God is associated with Christ coming for his people and believers being resurrected, not the judgment of the wicked, which is clearly happening in Revelation 11 when you see the seventh trumpet there. Furthermore, just to add, the trumpet here... The trumpet of God is the church being caught up forever to be with the Lord, while Revelation 11 has a final trumpet judgment, which is in rapid-fire succession in a bunch of devastations as the world has never seen. The two couldn't be more opposite contexts. And none of that is even conclusive. We'll, of course, have to look at that as we go. But I think it's best to see this trumpet as a signal blast from God, marking the call of God's people out of their perishable bodies and into resurrection glory. And so that's what Paul then mentions. Christ descends from heaven with the shouted command, with the voice of the archangel as, as the command trickles down to the authority structure, and with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Notice the dead in Christ. Don't miss the significance here. Believers may experience physical death, but they're always in Christ. Therefore, they can never be out of his presence. I love that. Physical death is what it is. It's part of living in a fallen world. This isn't our final state. But our soul is at rest. It is well with us on the inside. The outer man is decaying, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. I love that phrase, the dead in Christ. I experience physical death and physical aging and all that the fallen life brings, but I'm in Christ. I'm always in Christ. In fact, Colossians 3 says, my life is hidden with Christ. Those are the ones who are going to rise first, he said. If your relative dies and you happen to be alive when Christ returns, they will be raised first, joined with their perfected soul and they will be with you and with the Lord at that point from then on. D. Edmund Hebert, one of my favorite commentators, said, the first act in the drama to take place at the parousia is this resurrection of the body when Christ comes to get us. And then Paul says, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. So we see the transformation of those who are alive. After that, that doesn't indicate a noticeable time interview. It all happens just like 1 Corinthians 15 says, in the twinkling of an eye, we'll be caught up and united with our beloved ones in Christ and the Lord himself. Caught up here means to snatch away, as you know. So for the first time, on that moment, for the first time, the entire church, the entirety of God's people will be in one place, the air, with Christ. We will meet the Lord in the air and we will, for the first time, all believers across the globe 
all believers who have died in Christ in eras prior to us, for the first time we will be in the air with the Lord, caught up to meet him. And we will be transformed and in our glorified bodies. And the dead will go first, and then we who are alive and remain will be transformed with them. And we will meet the Lord. That is familiar Hellenistic and Jewish terminology and your thought life would have, having read this, been immediately taken to this idea of a ceremony and a triumph and a special union. This is the reunion. This is it. We get to finally meet all who are in Christ together. And yeah, the patriarchs will be there. You want to say hi to Abraham? Say hi. (laughs) He's going to want to say hi to you. We're going to want to meet every believer who's ever lived. We're going to want to hear the grace of Christ from every believer who's ever lived. And we will be together. And here we are in this room, beloved ones, and now we kick and scrape and argue and fight here. How ridiculous is that? We're going to live with each other forever. And we will be sinless. Yay! I mean, that deserves a shout from God's people. (laughs) We'll finally be without all the stuff that gets in between us. It's obvious that we will see the Lord in this moment and we will suddenly be like him. We will be glorified. We will know sinlessness. We will understand redemption as he knows it in that moment. We will be perfect Christian fellowship. We will be with each other. We will clearly understand his return, the nature of it, the timing of it. All of that will flood our perfect hearts and minds in a moment. And by the way, we'll have sanctified emotions. And my guess is we will simply weep with the highest, most perfect joy we've ever experienced. And the glory of Christ will shoot through us. Through and through. And every question you ever had about those who've died without Christ, even those you loved and prayed for, every question you've ever had, any question of any kind, any burden you've ever carried, any dilemma you've ever faced, all of it in that moment will be swallowed up, all questions answered, all burdens lifted, all dilemmas immediately resolved. Can you imagine? And then this line, and so, verse 17, we shall always be with the Lord. (laughs) I've never met the Lord personally in his physical resurrected body. Sometimes, you know, you have that silly thing that says, boy, I wish I'd have been there with the disciples But then, you know, my mind thinks that would have been even worse because I would have been just as foolish then as I am sometimes now, and then he would have seen it. (laughs) And then my mind says, but he sees it anyway. I mean, you know, it's just. But I've never seen him physically. And on that day, I'll see him, and I'll never have to not see him again. Thus, we shall always be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Can there be any greater security, any greater anchor? And you know what? The Spirit of God dwells within his people and among his people to teach us that very thing by supernatural means so that we feel the same security now as we will then. 
The only difference will be we are filled with doubts and sinful questionings of his goodness and the security of it. Now, we won't question it then. We will have no doubts. Wouldn't it be great if that was a small transition because you're so full of faith? Not likely. For some of us, that'll be a huge leap because we rarely believed God the way we should believe him in this life. And we grieve the Holy Spirit. And so we shall always be with the Lord. It's no wonder then he says to this sweet new congregation in verse 18, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Are you comforted? Regardless of where you land on when this catching away happens, every view of the rapture believes it happens. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So whatever your view of the timing of this event, it is a reality, and we are to comfort one another with these words. Can't you sit with a post-tribber and a pre-tribber and just encourage them to comfort one another with the words that they will be caught away? Well, I think we'll go through the tribulation. Well, I think we won't. Yeah, but we will both be with the Lord forever when it happens. And I know sometimes we think the other person probably wishes they held our view. You know? Who wants to go through the tribulation? When we get through the study of Revelation, I'll ask you that same question. You want to go through that? I don't. I love the promise to the Church of Philadelphia. If my view is incorrect, okay. Not going to change the fact that I'm going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Can we not be comforted with these words? That is rich. And we'll never have to be without him again. And even all through the millennial kingdom, as we reign with him in glory, and even in the final letting loose of Satan to deceive those who are on the earth in that thousand-year period in physical bodies not yet glorified, who have sinned and who've taught generations to sin in that thousand-year period, and they rise up to come against Christ. Even when Satan is loose to deceive them, there we will be with the Lord, watching it happen, knowing it's happening, and we will still be with our master. Is this not a great age in which to live, to be saved right now in the time of the Gentiles, before the great and terrible tribulation, before the final seven-year period when Israel is finally dealt with and the Antichrist reigns for three and a half years and then he's dealt with? This is a great time to live, beloved. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. We comfort one another with these words. We will never, from that moment on, be without the physical presence of our Lord and Master. For now, He has given us the seal of His Spirit. He is our engagement ring for the great wedding. He, our Savior, is the husband of His bride, His people. And the Spirit of God is the down payment, the engagement ring, the Araban. And we have him as our possession. And that's guarantee that Christ will come for his people. What a great comfort this would have been to this sweet little church. Clarity. I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who've died already. I want you to grieve with hope. Comfort one another with these words, will you? Let's bow together. Lord, thank you for this sweet letter to the Thessalonians. 
how it fits in so many of our minds, what you promised to the church of Philadelphia and any church that will be in existence like them when you return, when the tribulation begins. What a comfort it would have been to them to be promised to be kept from the hour of your wrath, the great and terrible day. And whether the church will be sustained by your power through those difficult times and you've just not written of it specifically in the book of Revelation and this prophecy or whether we will be caught up to be with you before it happens as so many of us see these texts to mean. We find such rich security and comfort in knowing that you yourself will descend and you will descend for us You've prepared a place and you will receive us unto yourself. No wonder you prayed to your heavenly Father that he would keep us and hold our faith until you returned. And then when you returned, you prayed to your Father that we would be brought with you so that we could come into your kingdom and see your glory with our own eyes and have your glory, your blazing holiness pierce through us, permeate us, Consume us so that we might be like you and enjoy the riches of all that you intended in this great work of salvation. Lord, we're comforted by your promise. May we just lift one another up as we eagerly await your return. Make us faithful as we wait for you. We ask for your strength and grace. For your power and glory's sake.